Hello, my name is Nick Butler. I am the current geriatrics fellow at the University of Iowa through the Department of Family Medicine. And today I'm going to be speaking to you about the uh, dementia screening in the elderly. I have nothing to disclose, so this is my disclosure statement. I haven't had any financial relationship with uh, any pharmaceutical or medical procedure um, company or device company, be it investigational or otherwise, um, over the past uh, year or in my lifetime. The first thing I'm, I'm going to touch on is the epidemiology of dementia, give you some idea of the, the numbers of uh, behind it in, in terms of its um, prevalence within the population, the types of dementia that are out there, and, and their rates, give you an idea of some of the costs that are incurred uh, as a society uh, with regards to dementia. I'm also going to talk about medical screening evaluation for dementia. I'm going to talk about the cognitive assessment screening tools, and this, this will be the lion's share of my talk, but we'll get to them uh, in a while. And then at the end, I'm going to touch on the risks and benefits of screening uh, for dementia in your patient population. So cognitive impairment, um, and, and I wanted to find cognitive impairment and dementia for my talk so, so that we're all on the same page when it comes to um, what I mean when I use these words. So cognitive impairment is, is, is a measurable impairment in one of the cognitive domains, but there's preservation of independence and function for the patient. Dementia, on the other hand, is an impairment in memory and a decline in one of the following. So the ability for the patient to generate speech or understand written or spoken language or decline of function and ability to recognize objects or ability to execute motor functions or ability to make judgments, plans, and carry out tasks. So it's impairment in memory with one of those four. Just one is all it needs. But these deficits must be significant enough that it's causing an impairment on social and occupational functioning. So these are the, the folks who are needing more assistance with um, you know, managing their checkbook or, or whatever. They need more help from other people and not able to live um, as independently. And so that's the major difference between uh, dementia and cognitive impairment is that um, it's an impairment in function, and that, that's what gets the, the, the diagnosis of dementia. Of note, the ability to execute motor functions, for example, if there's another medical reason that explains that, say, for example, the patient's had a stroke, then that uh, does not qualify them for dementia, unless if there's been a change from baseline um, that cannot be attributed to some other medical cause. So the epidemiology of dementia then, um, dementia affects 3 to 11% of all those over the age of 65. Uh, with estimates by 2050, there's going to be an estimated 18.5 million Americans that have dementia. The estimated annual cost, that's $100 billion a year, and that's current dollars. And that's including nursing home care, hospitalizations, medications, etc. And up to two-thirds of all, all dementia cases go undiagnosed. Further with the epidemiology of dementia, Alzheimer's type dementia affects 5.3 million U.S. citizens currently. Alzheimer's type dementia makes up 60% of all dementia cases. Vascular dementia, another 17%. And then Lewy body combined with alcoholic dementia and frontal temporal dementia make up uh, another 13%. And 
And one that I don't have in here is mixed dementia. There, there certainly can be a mixed picture of these for, for, for some patients. They may have Alzheimer's dementia with vascular dementia then in addition to it. So um, that's something to consider in these patients then as well. So why should you initiate screening? What are the clinical cues that, that can tip you off that you might want to look into doing a dementia screening? Now, there's four basic things, four basic reasons. And the first is if a patient has a complaint of having memory problems. The next is if there's an informant, so a spouse or a son or daughter um, who has concerns for, for their, their loved one's uh, memory or, or the patient's memory. Uh, if there's a decreased functional performance, so someone who was able to drive or able to live independently and now because of whatever reason there's been a decline now and they're not able to do things that they have previously been able to do in the past that would be a reason to to screen and in the elderly depressed and anxious patients um, screening is recommended then for them as well so the clinical evaluation starts with a thorough patient history and just like all good good exams a thorough patient history can really help guide you through the next steps of what you should be looking for and, and helping you, you know, categorize this patient with the type of dementia that they may be presenting with. Also going through risk factors, so past medical history. So looking at things, do they have, you know, a previous alcohol history? Do they have um, cold intolerance, things that might point towards a hypothyroidism? Do they have diabetes and hypertension, things that we know are risk factors for someone who may have multi-infarct dementia? Do they have hallucinations? So something that might point in more in the direction of a Lewy body type dementia. Are they more disinhibited? So are they um, having behavior changes that uh, are out of character for the type of person that they were before? Things that might point you more towards a, a frontal temporal type dementia. Well, look at head, head injuries. Uh, was the patient in a recent motor vehicle accident? And since that time has had uh, memory problems and, and again, specific to, to leading you down one road or another. Heavy metal exposures can cause it, as can medication, drugs, and toxins. So doing a good, thorough review of their current medication list, and then seeing if there's any sort of a link. So did the patient start uh, a benzodiazepine, and since that time has been uh, having more difficulty with their memory? And they placed an opioid or a tricyclic antidepressant. So doing a, a thorough uh, medication history is important as well. Sexual history is important, as sometimes tertiary syphilis, which we don't see as often anymore, uh, can, can present as uh, a dementing illness. And then you want to consider the patient's level of education. This is important not just in the clinical picture of their dementia, but also when you do your screening for the patient with your cognitive assessment it's important to keep their level of education and put their, their screening into context. Further for that clinical assessment, then it moves to a clinic that moves to the physical exam with a neurological exam and a gait assessment. The gait assessment can help point you again in, in one direction or another. If it's a shuffling gait, it, it might be more consistent with someone who has signs of Parkinsonian type type symptoms, and, and that might lead you to a diagnosis of Lewy body dementia or someone who has a, a magnetic gait, so they uh, don't really lift their feet at all from the ground. And that might be a picture more for a norm, normal pressure hydrocephalus. So again, uh, doing a, a good thorough exam, making sure there aren't any focal neurological deficits uh, for intracranial processes and such uh, can, can help you 
uh, in, in determining your differential and what, what's there and what's not. Then we move to the cognitive assessment screening tools, and I'm going to go through that uh, later on in my, in my slide. And then assessment of independent activities of daily living and then activities of daily living as well. And remember, the caveat to all this is I, I talk about this assessment and such. The thing I want you to keep in the back of your mind is less than 5% in, in, in some, some articles would, would say less than 1% of all cases of dementia are actually reversible. So even though we do this assessment, you need you to keep that in the back of your mind that uh, you want to really let your clinical cues help guide you in your, in your laboratory and diagnostic assessment. So here's a partial differential of dementia. It's, it's very broad. Uh, and remember, mixed dementia can be on here. So you can have someone with a multi-infarct dementia and also Alzheimer's or uh, you know, alcoholic dementia. But making sure that you're not forgetting things such as progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or AIDS dementia or Lyme dementia, and those are much less frequent and not something that necessarily you'd be screening for unless if there was a history. But certainly things to make sure that you're you're keeping lower down any differential, but any differential just the same. So the dementia screening tools, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force and the Academy of uh, Neurology do not recommend routine screening in asymptomatic patients. They do, however, recommend screening in a, doing a cognitive assessment for if impairments are suspected by the provider, by the patient, or a patient informant. Again, getting back to the indications for dementia and cognitive assessment screening, like I had mentioned earlier in my, in my presentation. Cognitive tests should be uh, assessed multiple uh, functional domains. And I'll explain here a little bit what a functional domain is. And they should be quick and easy and, and able to identify mild dementia. But at the end of the day, remember, these cognitive assessment screens are just that. They're screening tests. They're not diagnostic tests but they help you clinically make your diagnosis of dementia for these patients. Instrumental activities of daily living. I wanted to go through this to make sure that we all have an understanding what instrumental daily activities are. And these are the skills that it needs to maintain a household. So this is things like medication management and financial management. So do they have a pillbox at home and are they able to fill it on their own and take care of it on their own? Are they able to manage your finances independently? Are they at risk of being taken advantage of financially? Are they able to prepare their own meals? And this isn't just preparing a meal um, by putting it in the microwave because the daughter brought it over two days ago. This is being able to cook their own meal and, and provide themselves their own substance. It's also their own housework, so being able to, to maintain the home and then being able to go out shopping, obtaining their own groceries. Then also being able to use a telephone are all instrumental activities of daily living. So functional domains, there's five of them. There's language, memory, executive functioning, visual spatial skills, and attention. And those five all go into a cognitive assessment. And it's these five domains that are, that are being assessed when you're doing a uh, cognitive uh, screening assessment. And for those of you who are list learners, uh, and better, better at, at reading and, and less at pictures. Uh, here, here you go. Uh, listed for you right there. So to go through these each individually, attention. Uh, this is a, their the patient's ability uh, to focus on a task and complete a task. When this is impaired, it's very difficult. 
to assess the other domains because they can't stand tasks. They, they have a difficult time remembering the, the three words that you gave them earlier because they have attention problems. This is affected by delirium. This is also affected by patients who may have ADHD. Um, so it's, it's important in your testing to see if there is problems with attention that may be affecting other areas of testing them as well. So ways that this is tested are doing the serial seven, so 100 minus seven minus seven and so forth, as you see in the bottom left corner there. And then world, uh, having them spell world backwards is, is another method for uh, assessing attention. Uh, memory has five types. There's episodic, there's semantic, there's procedural, and there's working. So one of the main, one of the main ways that we assess memory is in the three-word recall. MSE has orange, airplane, and tobacco as the three words that it uses. And you can use whatever three words that you would like. It's just to make sure that there are three unrelated words and that don't have any similarities in the way they sound or, or rhyme or rhythm to them, uh, just to keep them separate. So there's episodic memory, and this is memory of what you ate for supper last night. It's episodic memory. Semantic memory is things like state capitals and, and who the President of the United States are. There's procedural memory. This is like tying a shoe or how to use a stapler. And then there's working memory, and this is when you memorize a phone number or a street address, something that you're going to use in the here and now, and then it will be something that you won't need after that time. The language field uh, is about word formation as well as rhythm and verbal fluency. So as you're speaking to your patient, uh, it's not just about word formation. It's, it's about word formation, but it's also about word finding in their rhythm in their speech. Does it sound normal? Does it, does it staccato speech? And then also verbal fluency. So do they have troubles with word finding? So this is tested through naming and syntactically complex sentences. So a uh, syntactically complex sentence, for example, in the mini mental exam, that's no ifs, ands, or buts tests for a syntactically complex sentence. But there, there are other examples of this then as well. And then a fluency test, so verbal fluency, uh, an example of this would be having um, a patient give you a list of as many animals as they can inside of a minute or having them give you as uh, many words that begin with a certain letter in, in a minute's time. So that's what a verbal fluency uh, task would be. Visual spatial skills. So this is the ability to interact with the environment. This is important uh, for visual processing and imagery. And uh, this, this plays a role for the patient when it comes to navigating in their community and, and particularly with driving. So patients who have trouble with visual spatial skills, really those are the ones where you should probably start to become concerned about their ability to safely drive. So ways that this is tested, as you can see along the bottom of, of the slide there, there are the interlocking pentagons, there's the uh, clock draw, and then there's the three-dimensional cube, which is a more advanced uh, measure for visual-spatial skills. And then executive function, so this is planning and abstract thought and judgment. And when this is affected, independence more than any other domain is affected, more than memory or anything else. So the way that this is generally tested is, is through things like the trails A and trails B. So in the bottom right corner of your slide, there's a trails A there. Uh, trails B is a bit more challenging. I have an example of that. 
later on in the slide. Um, and again, that, that tests abstract thought in, in planning more than anything. Um, cat and dog, they're both pets. And again, that's abstraction. That's, and, and this is, when this domain is affected, this is where, where the patient has trouble with insight. And so they may not realize their illnesses impacting them, and they may not realize that moving to an assisted living, for an example, might be a, a good idea um, when it comes to their overall safety, but they not, may not see it that way because they have lost this, this, this function uh, and, and therefore have lack of insight. So cognitive assessment tools are used to screen for cognitive impairment, um, and these really aid uh, in several ways. So they, can, they may help you uh, establish a differential diagnosis or, or, or narrow down your, your differential diagnosis. They can be used to help with the rating of a severity of, your of a patient's dementia. And it can also be used to help monitor progression of disease and also monitor response to treatment. So they can be used for a number of reasons. So at the initial diagnosis, but then at follow-up, uh, intermittently they can they can be utilized then as well and have have good purpose. So this is a, a chart of a number of different screening tests that you can you can choose from. As you can see, they have a number of different sensitivities and specificities, and then at the far right side is is the length of time it takes to perform these these individual tests. There are a number of other tests out there. At the end of the day, you want to find one that you're comfortable using that's validated for your patient population. As primary care providers, uh, the ones I have highlighted in, in yellow, I, I think would be of usefulness uh, and, and ones for you to consider. Of course, the mini mental state examination has a sensitivity and specificity uh, pretty good, 83 and 82%, and takes 8 to 10 minutes to perform that. The mini-cog, uh, mini-cognitive uh, assessment, uh, sensitivity depends on what source you look at, has a sensitivity of 76 to 99%, and a specificity is pretty good, 89 to 93%. And again, this is for screening for dementia. It takes about three minutes to perform. The memory impairment screen has a sensitivity of 86%, specificity pretty good, 90, 97%, and minutes to perform about four. The Montreal Cognitive Assessment, also called the MOCA, has a sensitivity of 100% for picking up dementia with a specificity of 87%. It takes a little bit longer to perform this test, 10 minutes. And then the General Practitioner Assessment of Cognition has a sensitivity of 85%, specificity of 86%, about six minutes to perform. So I'm going to go through each of these individually so you have an idea of these tests. These are recommended screening instruments. They've been validated for primary care. So the memory impairment screen, uh, the general practitioner assessment of cognition, the mini cognitive assessment, and the MMSE. Now the MOCA has not been validated for primary care, but the other four have. I'm going to talk about these four and then the MOCA then as well. The MIS, the general practitioner COG, and the mini COG all administered in about five minutes time or less. They all have similar negative predictive values as compared to the MMSE. And the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry as well as a summary article by the AAFP um, recommend that these be used for, by the primary care uh, provider for screening for dementia. This is the mini mental state examination, and many of you have probably seen this before. The first two sections, so the temporal orientation and the spatial orientation, those are um, assessing orientation as well as 
some of the um, semantic memory. Then there's the registration component in to see if a patient is able to memorize three words. In this case, they use carvings and brick. Again, three unrelated words. Then they have an attention and calculation section with the serial seven. So this is, uh, again, an attention measurement. And this is also functioning as a distractor. So after this, after the serial sevens end, the patient is to recall the three words that they're asked to remember previously in the exam. And so the serial sevens acts as a distractor between those times. There's a naming uh, section for a watch and pen. And then there's a verbal section with the no ifs, ands, or buts. And then there's a uh, being able to follow verbal commands by having them uh, follow through on a three-step command, as well as a written portion um, by having them uh, write a sentence as well as follow a verbal command and close your eyes. And then visual spatial is tested by the interlocking uh, pentagons. So the MMSC score interpretation, um, generally speaking, normal cognitive function is uh, 27 to 30. Um, normal cognitive impairment, and it, more what I mean is by dementia, uh, 21 to 26, and then um, moderate uh, cognitive impairment and dementia really starts at, at levels level, uh, of 11 to 20, and severe cognitive uh, uh, impairment is 0 to 11. Um, and again, that, that's more more severe uh, dementia by that by that point because they're going to have uh, severe uh, by that time more more likely severe limitations in their function. The uh, mini mental state examination, uh, the positives of it is it's this the traditional gold standard. This is what everything else is being compared to. Every other test that, that I'll talk about today compares error rates and their sensitivity and specificity to the mini mental state exam. It's the tried and true. The problems with it though is, is it tests language, attention, memory, and visual spatial skills, but it doesn't test executive functioning. It's nice because it takes 10 minutes or so to administer. And with the cutoff of 24, it's 87% uh, specific and 82% sensitive, so a little bit lower cutoff than the 26, a little bit, little bit better specificity. The other nice thing about this, because it is so um, well permeated uh, that it's, there's a lot of normative data uh, with regards to different ages. So if you have a patient who comes in with memory impairment and they're age 45, what are the expected uh, data points and what are the expected data and, and uh, results for a 45-year-old? Well, that data can be found uh, and also you know, normalized for gender as well as educational level then as well. Negatives with it, uh, it has a ceiling effect. It, it may miss cognitive impairment in those who are highly educated. So someone comes in, their PhD, for example, it may not be able to pick up early dementia. It may not be able to pick, up, pick up advanced dementia because of the, the high level of function that, that the patient once had. Conversely, there's a floor effect to this. It has an inability to detect changes in the severely demented. So those who are down around that 10 or lower range may have a difficult time uh, picking up uh, any changes as you follow them over time may not be able to pick up changes because it, it becomes insensitive at that level. It's also insensitive for picking up very mild dementias because it is a, is a fairly straightforward test. It does not test the executive function. It's a bit lengthy to administer. If you're administering two of these a day, that's 20 minutes a day and, um, and 100 minutes by the end of the week. So it, it can take time as you add up that over the course of weeks and months.
next um, assessment uh, screening tool I'd like to speak about is the mini cognitive assessment. Uh, to lay it out in terms of the process of doing this, it's a, uh, a three-step process. So the first is to have the patient uh, remember three unrelated words. So getting back to orange or plain and tobacco or whatever three words you'd like to choose. And having make sure that they have those in their memory and then moving on to a clock draw section. The clock is very specific. They need to draw a circle uh, to represent the face of the clock and then put the numbers in the clock then. So 12, the appropriate 12 o'clock position, 6 at its appropriate position, 3 and 9 then at their appropriate positions. Then they need to draw the hands on the clock and signify a time of 10 past 11. So they need the, the correct hands at the correct place and the correct length of the hands at the correct place. And it's important that, that you state it um, to them as set in the time at 10 past 11 because that takes just a little bit of abstraction to think about that as opposed to saying the time of 11:10. then you return back to the three word, word recall to have them recall the word the three words you had previously stated to them the scoring of the, of the mini cog is fairly straightforward if they remember all three words that's all they need they're not demented if they don't remember any of the three words that screens positive for dementia. Okay, the the issue becomes where they get one to two words, and that's where the clock draw matters. So the clock draw is either right or wrong, and if the clock draw is normal and they get one or two words correct on the three word recall, then they don't screen positive for dementia. But if they do have an abnormal clock draw with only one or two words on recall, then they screen positive for dementia. Again, this this assesses visual spatial. And, and memory domains with the, just a little bit of, of abstraction with the clock draw. It's quick to administer, takes three minutes, and may be used in multiple healthcare settings. So if you're someone who's out there who's working in the primary care clinic and also seeing patients in the hospital, it's nice because it can be administered there then as well. Reasonable sensitivity, again, depending on your source, 76 to 99% sensitive, specificity 88 to 93%. It's better at identifying dementia than the mini mental status exam, uh, state exam. It's better than the primary care physician alone uh, doing an assessment and determining whether or not the patient has dementia when this is added in with the assessment. It's ex excellent at identifying very mild dementias. And subjects perceived less stress with taking this test than when, when compared to the mini mental state examination. It's not limited by subject's education level or, or language level. Now, obviously, if you speak a foreign language and, and that, that's what they know, you'll want to administer this test in an appropriate language that, that is uh, to the patient's uh, uh, appropriate level. So it's not appropriate for the aphasic patient. So the patient who's intubated or unable to speak uh, certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't fit the, the, the need for them. So. But it um, does not aid then in differentiating different types of dementia, though, uh, where the, some of the other screening tools I'll, I'll go through uh, may, may help with that. The general practitioner assessment of cognition uh, is a two-part test. So focusing on part one, uh, the this first step to it is to have the patient uh, remember a name, address, and town. And then the next step is an orientation question of asking the patient the date. And then the third step is a clock draw. And then again, having the patient put the, draw the correct circle, 
with the numbers on the clock and then having the patient to mark the time on the clock and again stating uh, 10 past 11. And again, uh, then moving on to asking them something about a local news event. So just making sure that this is specific to the, the time frame that's going on, not letting them be vague about this. So if they, if they mention something like, uh, you know, the recent war that's going on, ask them details about that war, ask them specifics about that um, in order to make sure that, that they are in fact up to date with this. And then the sixth step to this is a five point step and that's having the patient recite the earlier um, memorized uh, facts of a first and last name, a street address, and then a city. And this is a five point. All the other ones before were worth one point. So that's a total of nine points on this section. The second part to this test is for the informant. So it's it's worth six points. And so it's it's six simple questions. So it, it you ask the informant, so is the patient having more trouble remembering things than they have uh, had recently? Uh, does the patient have trouble recalling conversations of, of you know, a few days later? Uh, when speaking with the patient, of word-finding difficulties? Do they find the right word or do they use incorrect words frequently? Uh, the next step then is to ask about financial and money management. Are they able to pay their bills and are they able to uh, budget uh, appropriately and, and, and safely? And then is the patient uh, less able to manage his or own medications independently? And then the last question for this is, you know, is, the, is the patient needing more assistance with transportation? And this is six uh, point section. So the total test is worth 15 points. Anything that scores 10 or less screens positive for dementia. So it's a, again, a two-step screening instrument, part one for the patient, and part two for the informant. It's quicker to administer than the MMSC. On average, takes about six minutes. Has equal sensitivity and specificity as the mini mental state exam, and it provides a systematic way of obtaining information from the informant, and also goes a little bit through uh, functioning as well for the patient. It has good positive and negative predictive value, and it's ranked by providers being very efficient and economical and accepted by the patient. The nice thing about it is. While the, while the practitioner may be uh, interviewing and screening the patient, another office staff member can have a split out se session with the informant to do the informant session, the informant section. So again, can help you save some time there. Performance of the patient is independent of education, gender, age, and, and also, also geriatrics depression scale score. It does have limited usefulness, however, without the informant. So that, that's the important bit with this. It, it is a good test, but you want to make sure that you have the informant there. I want to just briefly talk about what a receiver operator curve is because I have several of these to highlight uh, several of, the, of these uh, tests as I move forward here. So what a receiver operator curve is, is it's a graph of specificity against sensitivity. And the no predictive value line that you see there is essentially the flipping the coin line. So the further to the left and, and upward to the left corner there that the test can get, the better the test is. And so the ideal test then, as they indicate there, is 100% for both sensitivity and specificity. So this is the receiver operator curve here for the their general practitioner cog. So the two-part test 
is this solid line right along here. And the mini mental status exam is this kind of thin dotted line right here. So again, it's, it's about area under the curve. And the more area under the curve, the better the test. And there's more area under the curve for the uh, general practitioner cog than there is for the mini mental state examination. The memory impairment screen test um, is a bit different. It's a four minute, four item delayed free and queued recall. So what that means is you pick four words that you have the patient remember independently. Um, so let's use bucket as one of those words. Okay. And then after they get those four words down, you also have them remember four different categorical cues for those words. So for bucket, for example, the cue may be you use this when you mop a floor. And you, you make sure that they remember those four cues then as well. Then you have two to three minutes of interference. Uh, and interference can be anything from having the patient count from one to 20 and back, um, and, but having some sort of interference there. And then have them do the forward recall. And they get the points uh, out of four uh, with or without the cues. So if they, if they get them with the cues, it's the same as if they got them without the cues. This takes less than five minutes to administer, has a negative predict predictive value and misclassification equivalent to a mini mental uh, status examination. And its age, education, and gender do not affect the results of this. Uh, it does not measure, though, executive or visual spatial functions. It measures memory, obviously. It measures attention by having them do the uh, 1 to 20 and back again. And also, it measures it um, by just them being able to memorize a word and associate that with a cue. And then also memorizes language function as well. So the memory impairment screen receiver operator curve, again, a lot of area under that curve between that and the, the flipping the coin line, the 50-50 line. So a, a pretty good test. And this one, the false positive, if you look at that bottom, it's false positive. So one minus specificity. So that's the same as what you're seeing earlier with just specificity graphed um, 100 to 0. So 100 on the left and, and, and 0 on the right. It's the same thing as just 1 minus. So it's, it's, it's the same, same type of a graph there. And the last screening tool I'm going to, going to speak about is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, also called the MOCA. And I want to walk you through it because it, it's, a, it's a very thorough and in some ways exhaustive test. Uh, but it gives a lot of information uh, regarding your patient's cognitive functioning. So uh, let's start in the upper left-hand corner there. That, that section there is an example, and it's a shorter section of a trails B. So the way it works is one is connected to A. It's a connected dot. So one is connected to A, and A is connected to 2, and 2 is connected to B, and B is connected to 3, and so forth. So it takes executive function and planning um, to be able to do that. And that really is the value of that portion. Then moving uh, over to the right is a, is a, is a three-dimensional cube draw. So this is more complicated, more complex than just a, an interlinking pentag pentagons uh, like, like some tests have. And then there's the clock draw in the far upper right-hand corner. And again, assessing contour, numbers, and where the hands are. And again, having the patient set the time at 10 past 11. The naming section is a bit different um, because it's a lion, a rhinoceros, and a camel. 
And these are animals that are not frequently encountered. Uh, and so that makes it a little bit more challenging. And that's a three-point section. It's a five-word uh, recall section there under memory rather than a three-word recall, making it a bit more challenging. And they have several trials to do this, uh, to, to get this memorized. And there are no points for initially remembering the words. You move on to, a, to an attention section. So uh, in this portion, the patient has to uh, immediately recall and state back a, a five-digit number, 21854. And then the next section is a three-digit number, uh, but has to be read back backwards to the uh, administrator of the test. The next section then is a no uh, a go no go test, and that is a series of letters, and the patient has to tap the table or some sort of indication whenever the the letter A is 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 said. And again, this is a you know measuring attention. And then serial sevens, and again, so starting at 100 and subtracting seven each time. Then there's a language section. So this is a, a syntactically challenging sentence. Uh, I only know that John is the one to help today is, is a challenging sentence to have the patient read back to you. On the second sentence, uh, the cat always hid under the couch when dogs were in the room. It's not uncommon for that sentence for for patients to add their uh, the right there in front of um, dogs. So um, it, it, again, attention uh, measures language as well as attention um, in some ways then too. Then verbal fluency is tested. And in this example, what, what they ask is that the patient list as many words that begin with the letter F as possible. And then it moves on to the delayed recall. So now after going through all of that, now is when the patient has to recall those five words that you had them remember earlier. And this is where the value of this test can really come in uh, to play some. First off, the, the things before it were very worthwhile, but this, this is important too. And what, what that is, is if the patient doesn't remember the words right off the bat, they don't get a point for it. But you have an opportunity to give them a categorical cue as well as a multiple choice cue after that if they can't remember the words. And the reason that's important is if they can't remember Daisy right away, so Daisy's one of the words there. If they can't remember it right away, but they can with the categorical cue, so you tell them one of these was a flower and they remember it then. Well, it helps you that they were able to actually have the memory to begin with. And so it might lead you down the down, down a path of what well, are there are there problems with attention and focus rather than memory as the problem. It doesn't necessarily change in not having functional problems and attention issues, but it might help you think of other, other uh, diagnoses that, that might be leading to their, their memory impairment other than just dementia. And then orientation um, is tested there at the end too. So the MOCA score, um, you know, I like this test and I like MOCA, so it goes together well, as you can see that the MOCA in the bottom left picture there. Um, but a normal cognitive functioning person will be greater than 26. And this is a difficult, this is a difficult test. Um, and so a mild cognitive impairment, though, averages about 22. So it picks up mild cognitive impairment. So people who don't have any functional problems, just have memory issues, that's it. No functional problems. It picks it up. Alzheimer's type dementia averages about six, 16 for, for this. And this is on a point scale of 30. So the Montreal Cognitive Assessment then was initially designed for mild cognitive impairment. It was initially designed as a screen for that. 
evaluates multiple domains and evaluates all five domains. Has excellent sensitivity at 100% for Alzheimer's disease and 90% for mild cognitive impairment. Its specificity is 87% compared to 82% for, for, for the MMSC. And test retest reliability and internal consistency is very good at th for this. Uh, what that means is if you were to administer this test to a patient today and compare it to six months from now, and it's, if it's the same, you can say it's the same. If there's difference, you, you can say with some reason, reasonable certainty that it's consistent then too, that that change is, is in fact a, a measurable real change. The MMSE, however, has a plus minus of two points that can occur with that. So there's a little bit of retest reliability issues with that, uh, where there are less with, with this, this screening test. Uh, my recommendation is if your concern is for mild cognitive impairment in your patient, do a MOCA, do the MOCA on the patient. However, if you're if you, if you notice functional decline as well as cognitive complaints, so something that is more concerning for a you know, diagnosis of a dementing illness, then a mini mental would probably be the better of the two for the patient. This has been validated by several studies across cultures. So they've looked at this in Southeast Asia, they've looked at this in Europe, and they've looked at this in the Southwest United States. And in each of those locales, this has been a consistent means of screening and, and a consistent tool for picking up dementia and cognitive impairment. The receiver operator curve for this test, uh, the teal line represents the MOCA and the, the green line represents the mini mental state exam. And again, more area under the curve. Um, and this is for mild cognitive impairment. This isn't even for dementia, this is for mild cognitive impairment. And, and this, this is a lot of area under that curve for the, for the MOCA. So other screening tools that you'll want to consider using as you're evaluating these, these patients are the functional assessment questionnaire as well as the geriatrics depression scale. So functional assessment questionnaire, this is a, a good way to document and move through um, activities of daily living as well as independent activities of daily living. Uh, if you look through some of those things, for example, number three, food preparation, um, and uh, number eight, um, dressing and you know, tying shoes and buttoning the shirt are activities of daily living where food prep and cooking is, are, are more independent activities of daily living, uh, but important to assess both and gives a, a numerical value to that so that these sorts of things can be measured and followed over time. So I... I recommend that you, you do these sort of things. And again, things like driving are assessed and ability to squat down and pick up items off the floor are assessed. So really how, how functional are these folks and, and then can be followed over time. The geriatrics depression scale then uh, is, is important to do for several reasons. The, the first is that obviously some of these folks who have dementing illness early in the course have, may still have enough insight to realize that they have this dementing process and have failing memory. And so dementia might be there as well. Conversely, uh, some folks may have primarily a depressive illness rather than a dementing illness as the primary root cause of things. So their depression is the primary issue, but it's presenting with memory complaints. So this can help tease out some of that to see if they're are underlying things that need to be treated and addressed.
and and not that both don't need to be addressed. Uh, someone have is having memory complaints with a lot of depressive symptoms. Um, certainly important to treat the dementia, even though you may think that it's the primary dementing illness, which is causing it all. It's important to still treat that 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 underlying depression that goes there with the dementia. So diagnosis and other considerations uh, moving forward. So to diagnose the uh, the dementia, you, you need to consider the, the patient's history and exam uh, in the context of the mental status examination. And this can lead you to your diagnosis. If the history and screening tool are inconsistent, then you might want to consider further evaluation. Further evaluation can include laboratory evaluation as well as referrals and, and imaging. And I'm going to talk about those now. So neuroimaging that you might want to consider are CT scan or MRI, depending on which modality you think would be of better value and, and give you the most information based off the clinical picture that you're seeing with your patient. Neuroimaging is low yield overall. Again, 1 to 5% of all, all cases of dementia are actually reversible, so you want to consider that. But the times when, when neuroimaging might be appropriate on those patients who are under the age of 65, and certainly on those who have, have focal neurological findings, or if there's concern for something that's an endocranial process. That's the first portion with imaging. Uh, laboratory evaluation, uh, thyroid and B12 are, are ones that generally most folks get. Uh, comprehensive metabolic panel uh, to check, check for liver function, as well as kidney function, electrolytes. Certainly seems reasonable um, as, as it will have a glucose on there then too to check for underlying diabetes. So that, that's important uh, to consider uh, depending on what you find by your assessment. A CBC to look for anemia uh, as well as some um, possible lymphomas and such um, are, are important to consider. Folate and B12 uh, are, are tests to consider then as well as well as a calcium. And some would recommend uh, with calcium, get magnesium and phosphorus then as well. Other ones to consider for laboratory evaluations depends on your, on your clinical findings. If a patient has a high-risk sexual behavior um, risk and there is concern with a past history of, of STIs, it might be worth considering getting an RPR on those sorts of patients uh, to make sure that neurosyphilis isn't uh, part of your picture that's causing this dementing illness for your patient. So a lot of this should be driven by what you're finding by clinical exam, uh, knowing that most of the workup is going to be normal as there are very few causes of, of underlying um, dementia that are reversible from things like hypothyroidism um, and et cetera. Uh, neuropsychological uh, evaluation, so, so neuropsych testing can be helpful if you're unsure about the underlying uh, condition that's causing things. So let's take that patient who has, uh, who appears to have dementia or some sort of mood disorder in addition to what appears to be a dementia disorder. Take that patient and, and neuropsychiatric evaluation can help tell which may be the, the more prominent and more likely cause of the patient's memory issues. Um, and so that can help because it, it goes through and looks at the, the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe and um, can, can probe into each one of those areas of the brain a little bit more by testing um, and, and testing the function of those areas a little bit more in depth than, than any of these screening tests can. 
We also want to assess the current living situation and home safety situation for the patient. So, so you've diagnosed dementia now, or you're going down that path, making sure the patient's safe at home and assessing the functional capacity of that patient um, and making sure the living situation is one that's compatible with what, with what you're finding by exam um, is, is the next step there. And then you want to consider doing the to um, do the clinical dementia rating scale. Uh, this is a, a dementia rating scale that's been put put out by the um, Washington University in St. Louis, and this helps to trend dementia over time and the progression of dementia over time. So again, another documentation um, method for for monitoring the progression of disease. So harms for screening. So we all went into this without meaning to harm patients, um, and so. We want to consider the harms of, of doing this screening. So screening does not affect long-term outcomes for these patients. And you diagnose the, the patient with dementia, but it's not going to change the overall course of the illness many times. So you want to consider that as you move forward. There's an increased risk for depression and anxiety after dementia's uh, been diagnosed, particularly in those who have mild dementia or just mild cognitive impairment. So the very early um, signs of, of memory loss, um, it, it, more likely to have depression and anxiety in those patients because they still may retain their insight and realize the significance of that diagnosis. You want to consider the time and cost for screening. So not just the time and costs of screening uh, for yourself and your, your office staff, but also the cost of getting the extra MRIs and doing that extra evaluation um, if it seems as though it's a fairly um, obvious diagnosis of, of, of dementia. Um, the long wait times for di diagnostic neuropsychiatric testing can cause anxiety for patients and may cause depression for patients. And this may take several months uh, before the patient's able to get in for this testing. So keeping close tabs on your patient to make sure that they're doing okay, that their mood's okay after you've done this initial screening uh, may be important to do. Uh, neuropsychiatric testing takes several hours to do. This can be mentally exhausting for your patients and, and, and can be taxing on them. So having this discussion with the patient before you refer them for this testing about the, the um, intensity of this testing and, and considering the patient whether or not they can go through this reasonably uh, might be something to do. And again, so effective treatment for mild cognitive impairment. So further with the harms of screening, um, dementia may preclude patients from being able to get long-term care insurance. And also they may not be able to enroll in, in what are called continuous care retirement communities. So these are communities where patients buy into them when they're healthy and then uh, can move into them as independent uh, living. And then they have through time assisted living as well as uh, intermediate care facilities and as well that can take care of the patient through the continuum of their illness. But if they're diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia early on before they move into these communities and, and have bought into these communities, they may not be able to they may not be able to buy into these um, because of this diagnosis. So you want to consider the side effects of the medication um, that you that, that you can offer them as they do have side effects with nausea and such, it may be um, severe enough that it may impact them enough that, that that it, it outweighs the, the benefits that, that the, these therapies may provide. And many of the therapies that we have to offer don't, at the end of the day, alter the course of the illness for the patient, the long-term course. 
there's a large economic burden in, of increased screening. So you increase the number of screenings, so you increase the number of MRIs, you increase the number of uh, blood tests and, and such. And there's a, there's a real economic um, uh, factor to this. And you want to consider the community resources that you have to make sure that it's sufficient to accommodate the caseload that you might be throwing at it. So if, if a rural area is where you're from and an MRI scanner comes through once a week, then it might be something to consider that MRIs may not be something that you're going to be able to do and provide to your patients um, easily for just routine screening as part of your workup for the dementia. The caseload that you provide may be too much for your, your community resources. Now, benefits of screening. So it allows the patient time. It gives the patient time to do a lot of things. They can develop advanced directives. They can assign powers of attorney for financial and healthcare decision making. It gives them time to establish a last will and testament. It gives them time to, to talk with their family and, and have real um, conversations with their family regarding major decisions like long-term care and driving and major healthcare decisions. So the things beyond just you know, DNRs and DNIs, uh, the, the what would you want, uh, you know, do you want to be hospitalized for these things? Uh, and, and allows so them to have these conversations while they're still functioning at a high enough level to have the insight to make these decisions. They can, they can share these decisions with their family and, 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 and their decision makers so that um, their wishes can be known uh, and hopefully followed uh, should, should the time ever come up. It also delays the necessity for institutionalized care. So the reason this generally happens is because the family and the ones around them and the patient themselves have been able to adjust and they know that this decline in function is going to happen. So they've been bit by bit been able to accommodate the patient. So it starts small initially and you know then it may end up being a family member living with them or, or the patient moving in with a family member and it sees these small changes um, over time rather than having to make big abrupt changes um, all at once. Uh, that helps keep them, keep them out of uh, uh, institutionalized care. Uh, improves quality of life of caregivers uh, because they can build in things in their, in their day and their routine that helps get them some respite, helps get them some um, external sources, be it an adult day program, um, but this helps, helps build that in. It uh, helps because there, there are potential pharmacologic interventions. Uh, whether or not these help for the patient, uh, you, you'll need to determine that for yourself. But uh, there, there are potential pharmacologic interventions as, as these patients progress through the illness. Helps family members have an explanation for, for the recent behavioral changes that have happened for their family member, for their loved ones. Helps put this into context for them so they, they have some understanding of why it is that that, that their loved one is, has, has had the changes that they have and maybe doing the things or saying the things that they're saying. But all that said, for the, both the negatives and the positives of screening, um, per the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, there's no high-quality study to verify any of these claims. And there may never be any high-quality study to verify these claims. Um, but the, these are, are thoughts out there in terms of the benefits and, and the risks of doing uh, these screening tools. So in summary, what have I told you this, uh, today? I've, I've talked to you about the epidemiology of dementia. I've talked to you about the medical screening evaluation for dementia. 
I've talked to you today about several cognitive assessment screening tools that, that you can use in your patient population uh, if they seem, seem uh, reasonable for you. And then I've talked to you about further evaluation, both laboratory evaluation as well as imaging evaluation. And then I talked to you today about the risks and benefits that go with screening for dementia. Here's a list of the resources I've used in, in putting this talk together. And I thank you very much for your time. And uh, as I've gone through my talk here, I hope you've enjoyed it. And again, thank you.